There are many different um, signs and, and symbols that we know, that we recognize. Imagine someone had fallen into a deep sleep, maybe a coma, for a long time, and they were waking out of it, awoken out of it, and they were placed immediately into a, a shopping mall. And there inside, there was this huge tree with lights on it and tinsel. There was people queuing up to see a guy with a red outfit and big beard. They're thinking, maybe it's Christmas. Suppose they had woken up out of that sleep, out of that coma, and uh, in the shopping mall, and this time, there seemed to be lots of folks selling bunches of daffodils. There was chocolate eggs galore, pictures of bunnies and chicks hatching out of eggs, and hot cross buns in the bakers. Well, maybe it's Easter. Suppose again they woke up um, out of this coma, out of this deep sleep, placed in the shopping mall this time. Awful lot of broomsticks around. People in fancy dress, pumpkins, ghosts in the window of the shops. Maybe it's Halloween. Or then again, and this will be the last one. Um, <laughs> or then again, this person, this person wakes up from, from a deep sleep into the shopping mall. There's this huge tree with tinsel and lights. There's, there's people queuing up to see this guy in the red gear and the white beard. There's daffodils galore on sale. There's witches' broomsticks and ghosts in the windows of the, of the shops. There's pictures of the bunnies and the lambs and... and What's going on? Is it Christmas? Is it Easter? Is it Halloween? What, what, what's happening here? What, what's all that about? Now, that's the situation in John chapter 12. Um, in John chapter 12, the passage that Struan read for us, it's that confusion, that mix of messages, that clash of symbols. Not CYM, but, you know, SYM. It was that clash of symbols that was going on in John chapter 12. It was a time of Passover after all. Now that was the time when the Jews remembered that they had been delivered by God miraculously out of slavery in Egypt. How they began that journey across the wilderness to the, to the promised land. And God had done that for them. The palm branches, well they, they didn't... They, they didn't have any association with Passover. Actually, the palm branches were at the time of year when the Jews celebrated Hanukkah. Now, that was about six months later. And also, the palm branches had been associated with one of these Messiah figures, because there had been a number before Jesus, one of these Messiah figures who had led the people in battle Judea, Judas Maccabeus was actually one of the more successful of these Messiah figures. He had defeated Israel's enemies for a time, around about 200 years before the time of Jesus. He had defeated them and he had cleansed the temple. And when Judas Maccabeus was arriving in Jerusalem as, as a Messiah who seemed to be getting somewhere in terms of his, um, the army and the physical power and such, people came out and greeted him with palm branches. 
And, and such was the impact and the effect that palm branches, in fact, became a sign of that, that um, work of, of Judas Maccabeus. A lot of the Jewish coins of the times had, had palm branches on the, inscripted onto the coins, along with the words, the redemption of Zion. So, Passover, God delivers them. Hanukkah, Judas Maccabeus, a wee bit of respite from... And then to this mix and clash of symbols, Jesus adds to it by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. A sign of humility, yes, but also a reference back to the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, a prophecy of restoration and renewal of the establishing of God's King, and that salvation stretching out and reaching out into all the world. So it's kind of Christmas and Easter and Halloween all mixed in together. So, oh, oh, you know, what's going on? Is it a celebration of Passover, that, that deliverance? Is it about Judas and, and the saying we're going to do some fighting here? Is it about the humility and, and not being something for Israel alone, but a worldwide salvation? It was all mixed up. And Jesus, as he was fated with the palm branches and as he was riding in at the time of the Passover, was saying, yes. This is the time for salvation. This is the time for victory over my enemies. This is the time for establishing the kingdom of God. But it's not going to be what you think it is. It's not going to come in the way that you're expecting it. Now before I have some just thoughts on the nature of uh, Jesus' kingdom and as he was demonstrating it in this riding into Jerusalem, I want to highlight verse 13 in particular of the reading that Struan read. That's when they take the palm branches, go out to meet Jesus, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Now that, that reads okay, doesn't it? That's a kind of natural enough thought. There's nothing there's nothing kind of jarring there in the way that, you know, Christmas and Easter at the same time jars. Christmas and Easter at the same time doesn't fit. Uh, Easter and Halloween at the same time doesn't quite work, does it? We're confused by that. There doesn't seem anything confusing in verse 13. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. But, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you're following in the church Bibles, you'll see that there's a wee footnote to Psalm 118. It's a quote from the Psalms. But the next phrase, blessed is the king of Israel, is not a quote from Scripture. What's going on? The crowd, you see, then, are taking what God has, has said in his word... But they're giving it their own interpretation about blessed is the king of Israel. Here comes somebody who's going to try and do what Judas Maccabeus did, except maybe he's going to do it better. That's what they're saying. And so it's a mix of what God has revealed and people taking that but putting their own twist and interpretation on it, and putting their own twist and interpretation on it in a way that is to back up 
what they want politically, socially, economically, and so on. Now, the reason I want to stress that is that's a big deal at the moment. But not only is it a big deal at the moment, it, this is one of the church's besetting sins. This is one of the things that has plagued church history for 2,000 years. It results in the church being out of step with God. There's talk today of banning the Russian Orthodox Church from the World Council of Churches, of declaring that church's teaching as heresy. Not just because they've not spoken up against Putin, rather because they have tied up some aspects of the faith with nationalism and have a theology, a system of teaching that endorses Putin's stance that gives it some kind of supposed Christian legitimacy. Except that it doesn't. It's a heresy. It's a view that has tied up the identity and fortune of the gospel in Russia with a sense of privilege of being the Lord's special people and tying up the well-being of the church and the mission of God with their own national status and power and interest and privilege. The gospel breakthrough historically in Russia followed the baptism of a leader in the 8th century, I think, which was done in Kiev, which is why Putin's been so keen to have Kiev back under his orbit. This is... It's not that he's thinking he's doing something that's unchristian. He thinks he's doing something that's Christian. This is where it all began. This is, this is where we as, the, as Russian people became gospel people. And the Orthodox Church in Russia has backed that to the consternation of others. But let's be honest, it's not all one-sided and while I think the, the cause of the Ukrainians is, is right and legitimate at the moment, some of the statements from Ukrainians have caused me concern as they've shown signs of the opposite era, of the kind of lassoing of God for their own national gain. Now, it's a besetting sin. I, I've said it's something that's plagued the church for 2,000 years. It's not new and it's not confined to those nations. Much of the growth and domination of the British Empire showed a shameful outlook that had God supporting our interests. We exported a mix of Christianity and commerce. We sent missionaries and also sent economic exploiters at the same time. We declared Christ as Lord and you foreigners as our slaves or our exploited workers and enjoyed the benefits of it. Apartheid South Africa, white supremacy in the USA were often supported by a heretical God that said we are the people, we are the ones who are blessed and we're superior over them. You see, it didn't start with let's throw the Bible out, let's throw God to the side. It said, let's take the bits of the Bible, let's take some of what it's saying and, and add to it our own perspective or make it work for us so that we can justify who we are, even where that has led to oppression and even where that has led to some of the most extraordinary cruelty in the history of the world. 
And it's the same thing that's happening here in verse 13 of John chapter 12. Here's the legitimate bit. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Not necessarily wrong, except the interpretation they're putting on this king of Israel that they're greeting. A particularly awful example was given recently in the twist by Donald Trump and his entourage about Republican supremacy. And it was distressing that respected Christian leaders in the States were basically saying that a Christian could only vote one way for Republican and to vote Democrat was to do the devil's work. There's very serious feelings when we try and make our position the exclusive position of God to, to the detriment and harm of others. And these kind of very serious failings, and even other ones that we are guilty of but do not notice because you do not see the log in your own eyes so very easily, they do not fit with the clear example and teaching of Jesus. Now, I think that the issues as these things get worked out can be very complex and complicated. But what John chapter 12 is showing us is that the position of Jesus on these matters is crystal clear. Through all the mix of these contradictory signs and symbols, the Easter and Christmas and Halloween, if you like, of the day, through the mix of these contradictory signs and symbols as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he was showing clearly what kind of kingdom he was bringing in, what kind of king, what kind of saviour he was. He was a king who was humble. Here is a king coming whose ways are gentle, gentle and merciful and forgiving. Now, that didn't mean it was a gentle and easy way to go. It was cruel and it was hazardous and it was painful. The ideals of God's kingdom are only established when the king is enthroned. And his throne was about to be a cross. He is a king who serves, a king who suffers, a king who not just gets his hands dirty, but everything else dirty as well, so that he might bring life to his people. He's not looking for ceremony and standing on ceremony. And so there should be a thoroughgoing rejection of pomp and status in Christ's church. How I wish. The pomp and splendor of Vatican City. Bishops in the House of Lords. General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, when it comes to coffee break time, there's a room just for the ex-moderators. Okay, different levels of things, different seriousness, but all of them so contradictory to the king who rides in in a donkey. Contradictory to the king who comes to serve. Who doesn't set something up that's about privilege. Who doesn't set something up that says, be impressed by this. That's the way of Christ. And it's one of the glaring and consistent and most thoroughgoing failures of the church that we have not taken Jesus' humility seriously enough. And a whole host of ways. How do moderators go from reverend to very reverend? That's an absolute nonsense. 
on the 1st of May, our service is going to be the service that the Church of Scotland broadcasts. Um, maybe better not say that on the 1st of May, then, eh? <laughs> but I'm dead serious about it. Where does that kind of thing come from? It doesn't come from the way of Christ. Jesus and humility rides in. And not just is it a humility, it's actually a king who divides. You see, we might suppose the king of peace, the king of, who loves, the king who serves, comes and everything's just hunky-dory. Verses 17 to 19 of our passage show that it's always been the case that Jesus divides. The Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So although Jesus comes now clothed in humility, he nevertheless is the king of kings who one day will be judge of all the world. He will tell some to depart because he never knew them. And he will greet others with, well done, faithful servant. Jesus himself made it clear there was no middle ground. Whoever is not with me is against me, he said in Matthew 12. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He doesn't say we're all one. We're all Jack Thompson's bairns. No, there's the people who are with him. There are those who are against him. There are those who are gathering and those who are scattering. He divides. Or again, Matthew 10, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her, her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Quoting the prophet Micah. We see in chapter 12, a crowd eager to greet Jesus, celebrate Jesus. But by chapter 18, the crowd is calling for the release of Barabbas and for Jesus to be crucified. So he's a humble king, yes, who comes to serve. A king, though, who divides according to how people respond to him. And he is a king, referring to the prophecy in Zechariah, whose reign is universal. There's something contemptuous, isn't there, in the Pharisees' words in verse 19. This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, literally speaking, that's not true, because they're part of the world and they haven't gone after him. So they don't literally mean everybody, but it just seems like that. And just as in the previous chapter in John's Gospel, in chapter 11, the, the high priest Caiaphas says it's better for one man to die for the nation rather than the whole nation to die. And how John picks up on that and saying Caiaphas didn't really know what he was talking about when he said that. He was actually saying something that was truer than he could have realized that it's better for one to die for others than everyone to be judged and wiped out. In a similar way, the Pharisees do not realize and recognize what they're what they're saying here in verse 19 about the whole world going after him because greater than anyone there would have anticipated the faith in Jesus was about to become worldwide. The world went after Jesus, not just the Gentiles who gathered at Jerusalem for this and every Passover, and we read about them in verse 20 and following of chapter 12 in John. The world went after Jesus not just because of the many races who were there at Pentecost who heard the apostles speaking in their own language. 
The world went after Jesus not just because of the impressive way the gospel had spread by the time John sat down to write this gospel, but still today, the international Christian family of our time are people increasing among the nations hour by hour, anticipating the coming day when the Lamb of God, who is a king, will be acclaimed upon his throne as the one who, with his blood, Revelation 5, purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's right, Pharisees, the whole world has gone after him. Not just, not just the people around you in Jerusalem. Palm Sunday. It's a real mix. It's a real mix of the symbols and the signs. Passover, Judas Maccabeus, Jesus and a donkey, Easter, Christmas, Halloween, all at the same time. But in the flux of these comes a king who is clear, clear about his kingship and his kingdom. A king who has gone the humble way, and therefore a king who should have humble followers. A king who divides opinion and urges and challenges us about making up our minds. Well, have you? Have you made up your mind that this king is your king? That this way is the way that you will commit to? He who is not for me is against me, said Jesus. There is no fence to sit on. And a king whose reign is universal is the one who then sends us out into the world to show and share that good news of his kingdom. A king who gives us ground for hope. Jesus is the hope for tomorrow. Easter was not going to be what the people in John chapter 12 were expecting. It's going to be far better than that. And Easter is not just what you and I have realized and experienced thus far. It's even better than that. That's the hope for tomorrow. That in Christ, the best is yet to come. Let us pray.